Um, this morning, I just want to have an announcement from the elders, and then uh, we'll pray and get into our text. Uh, we are concerned about some modesty issues in the body. We have noticed that some of the women have been dressing very much like the world, which is inappropriate. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, which is proper for women making a claim to godliness. And the whole point there is modesty is really, um, immodesty is doing anything to attract attention to yourself, whether it be wild hairdos and lots of jewelry and elaborate dresses or not very much clothing at all. And uh, this is the place where we come to worship God in holiness. And as a woman making a claim to godliness, we would hope that you would dress modestly all the time, not just here, that you would make sure that you were never a snare or a stumbling block to anybody else. And it's very uncomfortable when the elders have to approach a woman and say, could you please leave the campus and come back another day when you're dressed appropriately? Uh, we don't want to do that, but we will in order to protect the men and the women here from ungodly influence. If you are thinking to yourself, well, I, you know, I don't really know what the code is. Well, there is no specific code, but, you know, as a general rule, if you can see up it, down it, or through it, and it leaves nothing to the imagination, it's not good. Um, we have resources on our website, and uh, you can read those. Um, I hope that all you mothers are encouraging your daughters to dress modestly, that all you daughters are encouraging your mothers and fathers Husbands, grandfathers, oversee your family and tell them not. You know what's immodest. And just make sure that as a leader of your family, you're keeping them from being a stumbling block. You know, this is one of the few places where we actually get to come and rest, hopefully, and relax and not have to be constantly battling what we battle out there in the world. And we don't want to bring that in here. So please um, take inventory and dress modestly and discreetly. If you uh, will pray with me, we'll then get into the text. Father, I just ask that this morning as we come together to worship you in spirit and truth now by the hearing of your word, that we would understand what your word says, what it means by what it says, and how to put it into practice in our lives. Father, I pray that Calvary Bible Church would be example uh, a light to the world, that we would not follow two steps behind the world going down, but that we would maintain biblical standards. And yes, it's going to make us stick out more and more, but that is what will make us more like Christ and give us a platform to speak to others about Jesus Christ and salvation by grace through faith in him. We think we are thankful for the text we're going to look at this morning because it's so full of yumminess and goodness for Christians, just blessings waiting to be had. Father, I pray that we would understand it clearly and leave here understanding how to apply it to our own life as we seek to consider how to practice the discipline of studying your word. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
You know, a lot of times people will come to one of the pastors and, uh, you know, usually when they have some trial or some issue, some sin they're struggling with, it, you know, kind of starts getting to overwhelm them. And so they come to us and say, you know, I'm just really struggling with this or that, or this has happened in my life. And I'm trying to, you know, deal with it in a biblical way. Do you have any like books you can recommend? Any, any resources you might recommend? And to most of them, it never dawns on them that they could study their Bible. They could, you know, actually dig into the word of God and probably find answers for everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, what if I were to tell you that on Sunday night, you know, I have a confession to make. I just search around the Internet and uh, find a good sermon by some famous preacher. And I just print it off and I just read it through a couple times and preach it to you on Sunday. I, I mean, after all, it would save me a lot of time. It would be easy. It would really be simple. I you know, why spend all that time on Thursday and Friday when I could be reading fun books about other things and, you know, laboring over a text of Scripture? Well, you know, this, this, this is the kind of thing you need to think about. Why would I want to do that? Why, no, why not just find some accurate sermon from some famous preacher who slayed his ten thousands for christ it'd still be an accurate sermon it'd still be uh, an expository sermon it would still be from the word and so why not just do that do that why not what is the difference what difference does it make between me studying and preaching to you or me stealing somebody else's sermon and preaching it to you do you think Calvary Bible Church would thrive under their ministry of me using borrowed sermons? If your answer is no, I don't think so, you are correct. But the question is, why are you correct? It's because when I study the Word of God, it convicts me. It changes me. It challenges me. And then when I'm preaching the Word of God then I can give you the fruit of my own experiential knowledge of that text. It's not that I just, I, I come to you um, kind of as a theorist, kind of guessing how this text might apply if I were to study it and were to have the word of God uh, work on my own soul and the scalpel of God's truth carve up my own inner being. I don't come to you as just somebody who's just kind of on the outside dealing with mere facts as a mere information broker to just come to you and say, here's some data. I come to you as a fellow sinner, having gone under the scalpel of the word of God myself, being convicted myself, being challenged myself, having discovered the truth for myself so that I can then give it to you. If I preach somebody else's sermon, I cheat myself and I cheat you. I'm not certain of the meaning of the text. And when I'm not certain, I can't really preach with passion and conviction and zeal because I'm not quite sure that it means what that guy said it means because I haven't studied it myself. So it kind of comes out as, you know, you might want to think about this. 
And when you study the Bible for yourself, you learn to observe what the text is saying. You grow in confidence of what you know. Your faith is not borrowed. Your faith is your own. Your doctrine is not merely from our, from others. Your doctrine is your own. You're able to handle the scriptures better. You're able to defend your, your faith. You have greater discernment because you've studied the Bible yourself. And I would be bypassing the blessing of Bible study and therefore cheating my own soul and cheating your souls if I didn't do study of the word myself. And so having studied the word myself, I am confident of its meaning and I can really lay into you because, man, I know what it says. Because then I've, I've preached it. And I know you have to sit there and go, man, this is painful. But believe me, it's a lot more painful for a lot longer than me every week. Because I have to go through it. It convicts me because I've got the word working on me. It's like, oh, no, I'm reading another commentary. Ooh, ow, ooh, ow, the whole week. And I can only tell you a little bit of what I see. The rest is for God beating up on me because I'm going to beat up on you. And that's kind of how it works. And it should work that way. I preach somebody else's sermon, it just doesn't work. And so this is why Bible study is so important. And that's why this morning we're going to look at practicing the discipline of studying the Word. And our text this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. So if you can go to 2 Timothy um, chapter 2, verse 15, you will see our text for this morning. As you get there, let me just give you a little background. Paul establishes this church in Ephesus. He's there for three years, and it's such a critical place. He sends all his best, you know, all-star preachers and teachers there. Um, he sends, you know, Timothy there, who's there, is kind of left there as the pastor. But he also sent Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and Tychicus and Titus. I mean, a lot of people were sent there to try and get that church founded and established because there were so many people going through that area that it was really a, a key place. The problem is there was also a bunch of paganism and false teachers and opposition. And so it was a hard place to minister, but a key place to minister. Paul writes to Timothy to remind him what church leaders specifically and what every believer really in the church is supposed to do. The priority of public worship is really a a constant theme. When we gather together, what are we supposed to do? And the book tells us, actually all three pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, tell us what we're supposed to do. Our text comes in the middle of chapter 2. Before our text... Paul just unloads on Timothy. This is the last book he ever writes. He's, he's in Rome. He's imprisoned uh, in a prison hooked to a sewer system. And he's going to die, and he knows this, so he writes his kind of last will and testament. And in chapter 2, he begins the, the chapter telling Timothy to be strong, verse 1, to entrust things to faithful men, verse 2, to suffer hardship as a soldier, verse 3, to be like an athlete, verse 5, to be like a hardworking farmer, verse 6, to remind his congregation of these things and solemnly charge them not to wrangle about words, verse 14. Then comes our text. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. 
And then after this text, Timothy is told to avoid worldly and empty chatter, verse 16, to abstain from wickedness, verse 19, to cleanse himself from dishonorable things and to be prepared for every good work, verse 21, to flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, verse 22, to refuse ignorant speculations, verse 23, and to not be quarrelsome, but to kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, verse 24, and with gentleness, correcting those in opposition, verse 25. So he's just, you can see when you read through the book, you know, Paul's just firing away. Do this, do this, don't do this, do this, do this, don't do this, do this, do this. I mean, the whole thing, he's just trying to say, listen, I'm going to die. Here's all the most important things. Do these things and stay away from these other things. And right in the middle of this huge barrage of commands is our text. A text that tells us we need to be studying the word. So what I'm going to do, and this is kind of my standard outline just for this series. I'm trying not to get into too much detail as far as all these outline points. I'm just going to talk about the doctrine and meaning of the text, 2 Timothy 2.15, and the practical application of it. Because uh, we want to just kind of, I'm trying to spend more time on application, the how-to in this series. First, understand the doctrine and meaning of the text. So as we look at the text, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you the mode, the model, the motive, and method of study. So that's mode, model, motive, and method of study. The first, the mode of your study, be diligent. This is an active command. It means always be diligent or always be in the process of exercising diligence. And, of course, it's talking about the study of the word, as we shall see. The, the word translated diligent means kind of passionate, eager, chomping at the bit pursuit of someone or something. So it, it, it kind of is like a, a hunger, a striving, a, a wanting, kind of like somebody who thinks there's gold in a gold mine will get in there and just start hacking away at it because they're eager. They want the gold, so they're, they're hacking their way into it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and proper for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That is the treasure. To get at the scriptures, or as 2 Peter 1, 3 says, those precious and magnificent promises which give us everything pertaining to life and godliness. They're there, they're contained in the book. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, but Pastor Jack, come on, um, this book is written to pastors. That's why it's called a pastoral epistle. And uh, it was written to Timothy, and he's dead. And even if you say that it's written to all pastors of all times, I'm not a pastor. I'm a housewife or a student or whatever. And so that's why I come here and let you preach at me. And so I don't really need to study. Well, hold on a second. Because when you look at the scriptures, why are pastors and elders to be what they are, so that they can be a example, an example to the flock, so the rest of the church can follow them. Not only that, you may say, well, yeah, I, I can see here. I know this is the Bible, and it's all profitable for teaching and reproofing, correction, and training in righteousness. Okay, I see that. But isn't this kind of more specifically for church leaders? Turn to the last, last verse of Second Timothy. Let me just show you something here that's kind of fun. Sometimes you have people who want to escape accountability and they act like, well, because this was written to Timothy, therefore it doesn't matter to us. Then why is it in the Bible? No, this is for everyone. Yes, 
The primary original target was Timothy, but then it was written for Timothy so he could leave it behind for the whole church and the church leadership so that the church leadership could then know these things and teach the congregation to do these things. Say, well, how do we know that? If you look at the last verse, it says, the Lord be with your spirit, grace and peace be with you. Do you see that there? Now, what you can't see in English is when you see that word you or your, it can either mean you single person or you bunch of people, all you. So the question is, what is going on here? When he says the Lord be with your spirit, is that single or plural? It just so happens that's singular. Because he's talking to Timothy, he's closing the letter. He's saying, Timothy, you know, grace and peace be with your spirit. And then he also says, grace be with you. And there he puts you, plural, to let the whole church know. And if you're a Christian, you're part of it. This is for you. So I tell you that, that yes, you are to study the Bible. Granted, as a church leader, it's the primary function That is to happen in the church. So church leaders are to be taking special heed to this to make sure it happens in the church. But it's for any believer. So the mode of your study needs to be diligent study of the word. Diligent study of the word. Then the model of your study to present yourself approved to God as a workman. Now Americans tend to have problems We have the kind of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you know, the Frank Sinatra, I did it my way mentality, the Nebuchadnezzar, is this not Babylon the great that I have built? And a lot of times we just don't want to do certain things. We don't want somebody telling us to want to do. We want to take the shortcut to everything, the easy road to everything. If it's easy, it's good. If it's easy, it's fun. If it's easy, that's what we want to do. We want to have it easy and we want to have it fast. Well, here we are told that we are to present ourselves. And this word is not an I'm going to do it my way verb or verse phrase. It's talking about you presenting yourself to someone else because you're accountable. It's used in a couple different ways. Either you present yourself because you're in service to somebody who's over you as a boss or a ruler, or you present yourself to somebody because they're a judge. In this text, it's used in both ways. Both meanings are there. Why? Because when you're studying your Bible, you need to realize you are in the service of the king, and therefore the king is watching you, And you will be judged by that king. Therefore, how you study the Bible is a big deal. This is not about you doing it your way. This is about you doing it God's way. Or you'll be judged. The word workman describes one who, it's really a word used for day laborers, field workers, hard toiling labor. The study of God's word takes hard toiling labor. It's not easy. God wants us to dig and think and ask questions and read and, and think and meditate and dwell on and ask and do more research and study to find out what it says. And then after laboring in the study of the Bible, God, the judge, watching all the while is seeing if we are going to do it like he wants. 
And of course, James chapter 3 verse 1 says of teachers that teachers will incur a stricter judgment. This is a huge deal. I mean, studying the Bible is important, but teachers, James says, incur a stricter judgment. Why? Because you have the, the, the privilege of teaching and the responsibility of preaching. You can either lead everybody in the truth or lead everybody in error in one fell swoop. Teachers, preachers, remember God is watching to see if you diligently prepared. You will give an account for your faithfulness in studying the word. Laziness, uh, sloppy, undisciplined study of the word leads to inaccurate understanding and false doctrine. And false doctrine always produces ungodly living. I was talking to somebody yesterday and... Um, it was at nighttime, and I said, so what'd you do today? I mean, it was, yesterday was a pretty nice day. I said, well, I got up and studied for about half the day and then ran some errands and, you know, did some exercise and whatever. And the whole point is, is do you mean, you mean while your family was pray, playing and everybody was doing fun stuff and you, you sat alone with some books and the Bible and you studied? Why? Because they're teaching Sunday school here. And they want to make sure they're diligent as an approved workman unto God. Second Timothy 2.15 is not a suggestion. It's a command from God. The judge was watching every believer as they study his word. But especially teachers and preachers. Then we have the motive of your study as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. In other words, we should strive to have unashamed study habits. That is, if God showed up, you won't kind of wince. You know, sometimes uh, when I'm here on Sunday morning and I don't have to preach, which doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while it does. I fly in, I'm all brain dead, and so I kind of show up on Sunday. I go into a Sunday school class and people see me like, ah, it's the are you, are you going like, to be in the class here? Yes, I'm going to see if you studied. But you know what? God is seeing if you studied. Every time you study, whether it's for teaching a class or not. Now, Paul is not saying here that you need to make sure <coughs> when you study the Bible, you have exhausted the text. <laughs> Good luck. You can never do that. You can never exhaust the text. Um, one of the things I do um, from my seminary students, sometimes I talk to them about, you know, taking a single passage and uh, a pretty big passage and preaching one sermon on it. So I said, you know, give me an outline for this one, one passage. How would you break this down if you preached one sermon on it? Then I said, well, okay, what I want you to do is give me now three outlines for three sermons on that text. Now I want you to give me six outlines for six sermons on that text. Now I want you to give me 12 outlines for 12 sermons on that text. It's, it's endless. You can never plumb the depths of Scripture. There's always more. Believe me, you have never seen me preach as slow as I could. I mean, I could probably get a month of sermons out of four in a text. So, well, why? Because it's relating to everything in the context. I just preached the whole context before I even got to the verse. For the, let's talk about the article and all the different ways the article is used in the Bible. For Jesus. How many sermons do you think I could get out of Jesus? You know, just, I mean, you know, you're talking major. So the Bible is deep and it's wide. 
So Paul is not saying, listen, before you, you know, teach anything, before you, you better exalt. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is you just need to make sure that as a believer, you're taking the time to study diligently for whatever purpose you need to study. Granted, there are times when, let's say you're just having some devotions and you're interested about something. You've got to be at work in 20 minutes. And so, you know, you sit down and say, well, it takes me about 10 minutes to drive there or whatever. And, you know, so I'm going to, I've got 10 minutes and you look up a few cross references. You pull out a Bible dictionary. You know, you do a little bit of study. That's fine. It's just for you. It's just for a thing. You've only got a limited amount of time. You're faithful. You studied. That's fine. You know, I do woodworking sometimes, and uh, sometimes I mess up things I'm working on. You know, I, you know, go the wrong direction with my router and chew up the grain or, you know, drop something on there and put a big dent in the middle of my thing. And it's like, duh. And then I have to decide, am I going to like go down? I've worked on this like premium piece of fluted wood, and then I messed up one of the flutes. And then they go, do I go down and buy a brand new piece of lumber and set up the whole jig over again and do the whole thing? Or do I just accept the flaw? Leave it in whatever I'm making and just leave it as a monument to Jack Hughes' imperfection. (laughs) Usually, because I'm cheap, um, I just leave it in there. And my wife usually says, yeah, nobody knows. Yeah, but anybody who does woodworking, they come in and go... Um, yeah, let's pray for him. Uh, you know, but that's okay. You know, it's a bookshelf or something, you know, it's not a big deal. It doesn't need to be perfect, but I'm telling you, if somebody was paying me to do that, I would try to do it as perfect as I could. And if Jesus said, build me a bookshelf, I would really be obsessive. Jesus is saying, be diligent to present yourself approved to me as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. I want you to give me quality work here when you study the Bible. Why is that? Why is that? Because the Bible is the most important resource God has given you as a believer. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior... Your Bible is the primary way God blesses you. And if you get the Bible wrong, you break your walk with the Lord. Your whole life is broken. Because it's in understanding the Word of God clearly that we are blessed. If we understand it inaccurately, then we are really cursed because we're led astray. Rather than closer to God, we're led further away from God. It, you know, there's... It's only two ways. It's either right or it's wrong. It's towards or away from. Fourth, we see the method of your study, handling accurately the word of truth. This is a a cool little phrase here, this handling accurately really means to divide or cut with precision. That's what it means. It was used of making roads, of uh, like uh, like Paul was a tent maker, and he had to cut out the patterns for the tents in an exact way. Some of you women sew, and you know that when you put out the pattern, um, the reason you have a pattern is so the dress turns out right, or whatever you're making. You just don't go willy-nilly cutting out something, say, well, that looks like a good sleeve, and we'll see if it worked, and you got one small one and one big long one. I mean, it wouldn't work, right? And so what you have to do is you follow the pattern exactly. You sew on the lines right where you're supposed to sew so that the end product looks right. 
Well, in the same way, we need to handle accurately the word of God. We need to cut it straight so that all the parts of the Bible fit together accurately and we get the correct picture of truth that God is trying to give us. If we play fast and loose with it, then we get a broken picture, distorted truth, and false understanding of scripture leads to false doctrine, which leads to false living. And that's why God is concerned about this. So, it's only when we first study the Bible and accurately understand it, that secondly, truth is understood, and three, that the Holy Spirit can bless, and four, the godly living results. So that's why we need to study the Word. But that is the easy part. Now, how do you do that? You know, you you don't want to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, And you don't be deceived by the trickery and craftiness of men. And so how is it that you're supposed to study the Bible? Well, the Bible's a big book. I mean, when you think about the Bible, it's especially when you're a new believer and somebody goes, here's a Bible. And you're thinking, whoa. And you start looking, man, those, that paper's really thin. And, um. And you're looking at all this stuff, it's like, what is this stuff? It's just, it's just, it, there's just so much here. You think, how can I ever figure this out? It's, there's, there's all this stuff here. The Bible is written over 1,500 years by authors from different cultures and different places and different times and different situations. And they wrote different kinds of literature, some about the past, some about the future, some about the present. Not only that, they wrote in, under different law systems, under different dispensations. They wrote in all kinds of different things. Then they wrote all kinds of different literature, you know, the, the prophecy and all these different stuff. And you're thinking, what? What's going on here? You have so many different things like this. You're thinking, this is, this is heavy duty. Yeah, it's heavy duty, especially when you're dealing with the Old Testament, which you're dealing with the word of God written to people under the law system of Moses and under the covenant, uh, the Deuteronomic covenant, the covenant God made with Israel. And then all of a sudden you have something happens where Jesus inaugurates a new covenant in the upper room and we're no longer under the law of Moses, but the whole Bible applies, but it doesn't apply specifically. And it's too much. You're just thinking like, Oh, 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 don't. It's like, okay, too many questions. I'll just come and listen to you. And that's why a lot of people don't uh, study. They, you know, they compile through the book of Leviticus, but all the while they're thinking, okay, all right, I'm not a Jew. I don't have to kill animals. You know, I, I, I've never cut any fat off any kidney and offered it up to the Lord in my whole life. And I hope I never have to do that. I mean, I would just think that lighting kidney fat on fire sounds scary to me. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't live in that world. I've never seen a Philistine. And I would not put a rock in a sling and drive a rock through the forehead of one and cut off his head. So what in the world does this mean to me as I'm driving down the freeway to go to my desk job? What, what does that mean? And see, this is some of the problems that we encounter when we study the Bible. But there are answers. There are answers. Some texts, the Old Testament, seem to apply directly. And yet other ones, they seem to not apply at all. And, and, in, a, and in addition to this, there are churches who are just teaching emotionalism. 
emotionalism. They don't teach their people how to study the word of God. They just kind of use Bible verses as kind of like spiritual pixie dust to sprinkle on their false doctrines. They skip around from text to text, extracting little fragments and creating false doctrines. That's what the cults do. And but there's a, all these reasons are reasons why people don't study the Bible because there's just it's a responsibility. There's all these complex issues. I don't even understand the jargon. But you know what? You need to do it. God wants you to understand His Word. He wants you to understand it accurately. He commands you to study it accurately in an approved to Him way as a workman so that He can bless your soul. He was waiting to bless your soul. There is nothing better than studying the Bible and going, whoa, whoa. And you're just, that, that is so cool. And then you can tell somebody and bless them. I mean, you own it because you studied it and you discovered it and you found it out. It's so fun. But like learning anything new that, you know, the learning curve is steep. You know how it is. If you've ever gone to like a new job, the first day in the job, you don't know anything. It seems like everybody there who you don't know knows everything. And you kind of show up. You don't even know where the pencils are. And then you're trying to, so, so, so what do I do? And they're saying, well, this is how you do this. And, and, oh, the first couple of weeks, it's just like a headache every day. It's just, you're learning at this exponential rate, trying to catch up so you can actually assist the company rather than drag it down i've been slowly working on learning about websites i don't know anything about websites i don't understand websites i don't understand website language i don't understand the best way to do things i don't know what to avoid i don't know how to accomplish anything i mess up frequently but i can tell you this with persistent efforts over the last three weeks i know a lot more today than i did three weeks ago I still don't know very much. I know, you know, like 1% of whatever there is probably or less than 1%. That's like, okay, so I don't know anything. But you know what? By application and trial and error, I'm doing better. Persistence praise pays off and it will help you the rest of your life. It's accumulative. If you're always studying, you'll become a better studier the more you study. And since God wants you to understand his word and he wants to bless you, you know, you got to do it. Now, I can't give you a whole course this morning on how to study the Bible, but I can tell you where to find one. You can go on the church website. Look at the how to study the Bible class. You can print off the PDF lessons. You can listen to the audio versions. You can get together with a group of people and work through it as slow as you want and do it. Figure it out. Everybody should take classes on how to study the Bible and keep doing it. And you have to be patient because, you know, if I sat down with you and said, hey, you know, I want you to figure out how to use this complex piece of machinery. I started telling you about all this stuff. You think, uh, uh, could you show me that again? Well, I just did. What's wrong with you? Okay. Usually you don't learn by one exposure, right? We need multiple exposures and then we begin to learn something. My wife told me that she thought it was after taking the how to study the Bible class that I taught eight times that she finally started to get in a grasp of it really well. You know, sometimes I teach people and they kind of look at me like every term is hermeneutics, context, you know, things like that. Is the, you know, the, the priority of the original language's perspicuity. What, 
It's pure promiscuity. You know, you don't understand those things. All those things sound like blah, 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 like Charlie Brown's teacher. You know, you just don't understand anything. And yet, every time you do, you learn a little bit more. Imagine being told by your boss at work, listen, I want you to uh, uh, learn this program. I know it's complex, but learn it because you're going to need it to do this huge, important project for the company. Okay. So what do you do? Just kind of sit around, think, okay, I'm just going to fiddle around here and, you know, click some buttons and try some things. And then I'll try and use as much as I can. Not if you're smart. You could ask other people who know how to use it, how to do it. You know, you download some training videos or get some books on how to do it. Why? Because you want to be efficient. A lot of people only, you know, learn about 10 or 15% of their program and, and they barely get anything done. They're wasting tons and tons of time because they won't spend a little bit of time extra to learn the software a little bit more so they can really be productive and take the full strength of that and apply it to the task. And that's how it is with studying the Bible. You know, you might say, well, yeah, I, you know, kind of heard you talk about some things from the pulpit and I'll just going to press some buttons in the Bible when I read it and figure it out. No, that's not good enough. God says study the Bible, but you only need to do it your whole life. So you know everything. I know that among us here this morning, there's some people who are pretty much expert Bible studiers. You study the Bible for a long, long time. You feel very comfortable with it. And for you, it's pretty easy. Yes, there's things you can learn. There's things I can learn. But for the most part, you're an expert Bible study. And then there's some of you who are thinking, I don't think I've ever really like sat down and actually studied the Bible by myself on my own to look up anything or discover anything. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to start with the basics and we're going to go as far as we can before we run out of time. I'm just going to give you some, this is going to be review for some others. It will be brand new and probably just totally overload you, but I am going to make it simple. First, what is the goal of Bible study? Think about that right now. Picture a box in your mind, fill in the blank sermon box. Question, what is the goal of Bible study? Right, right in the box right now, right in your box in your mind. Okay. The box is, says the goal of Bible study is to, what are you going to put in there? Here it is. Here's the answer. The goal of Bible study is to first understand what the original author meant for the original audience to understand by what was written. That is also called the interpretation of the text. What the original author meant for the original audience to understand by what was written. Notice it is not what it means to me. What if you're dead? What does it mean? What if you don't exist? What does it mean? What did God mean it to mean to the people he first wrote it to? You have to go there first. You have to go there first. Later, after understanding what the text means, then you can talk about the principles, the spiritual principles in the text or the application or kind of the things that relate to you. The goal, though, is to find out what the original author meant for the original audience to understand by what was written. This then will protect you from coming up with, well, it says Paul was in chains and I used to be a chain smoker. So it's speaking to me, telling me I should quit smoking. See, that just doesn't work. That's broken. Now, 
What I want to do is, here's some just very simple steps. You're going to study the Bible. First, pray. Novel, isn't it? Prayer works for everything. Since the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the Word of God, and since the Holy Spirit is the one who grants us illumination or the ability to understand the Word, always ask God for help whenever you study the Bible. Show me great and wonderful things from your law. It's a good thing to start off with. Since you need God to really understand it. Secondly, consider your text in light of its context. You say, now what is context? Well, there's a whole bunch of different kinds of context. Now, you don't need to write these down. I'm going to give you a cheat, a cheater thing in a minute. So you can just relax here. What do you mean by context? That's what I mean. Does your text fit into the Old Testament or New Testament? Where is it in the context of the whole Bible or the Old Testament or the New Testament? Is it one of the Gospels? Is it a letter to the church, a book of Revelation? You know, how does your text fit into the big context? And maybe what kind of literature is it? The context of what, you know, groups of books written by a certain guy, like all of John's books or something, or what is the far context, or how does it fit into the overall um, major points and outline of the verse? What is the, the nearer context before and after? This is what I mean by context. How does it fit in? Think of this as this way. Like, what if I were to uh, blindfold you and take you somewhere, where we drug you too, so you don't even know where we're at. Okay, we, we, we blindfold you, after we drug you, so you have no idea, and then we ship you someplace in the world. Then you wake up, and I say, okay, we're going to take off the bag. We're going to put little blinders here. Okay, where are you? And all you're looking at is some dirt. Uh, on the ground? Yes. In the world? Good answer. In the universe? Yes. Anymore? No, no, can't get any more. Now, what if I were to then say, okay, what we're going to do is uh, I am going to show you on Google Earth a picture of the world. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this one small little town uh, Kamii, Idaho, let's say. Uh, most of you probably never heard of that. Anyways, Kamii, Idaho. So we kind of zero in. You see the United States. You see Idaho. You see down there. We see this tiny little town. All of a sudden, we keep scanning in, scanning in, scanning in. You see kind of mountains of pictures, whatever. And you go, oh, okay, I see. It's kind of north of this and south of that. And it's over by here. Okay, I see that. Then I get you in a jet helicopter. And we fly there. Kind of fly around the whole area. And we kind of circle in. And we kind of land. Then we land. And then we get out, and then we go over, and we look at the ground. Where are you? I'm in Kamii, Idaho, looking at the ground. See, what is the difference there? Now you understand the context. You've seen the area. You know how that place fits into the the world. I've, I've showed you the whole the context. That's how it is when we come to the passage. The problem is, is context, it's the king of all Bible study principles. But as I said, there's a lot of different kinds. So how do you get to them all? I mean, how do you, you know, go here, here as it is. You just get yourself a study Bible. And so, well, like what? I just a study Bible, like a MacArthur study Bible or something. Have you ever noticed in those study Bibles that right before every book of the Bible, there's like a couple pages of stuff? Those are all the different contexts. Did you know that? 
It's like, wow, really? Yeah. The background theme, historical, you know, context, interpretive challenges, you know, different stuff. They give you an outline of the book. So you can see if we looked at, you know, Second Timothy, we'd see there's four chapters. We'd see the outline of the book and we'd see how our text, Second Timothy 2.15, fits into the overarching outline of that book. And we could do that just if you have a study Bible, a couple pages. And if you're going through a book, what's cool about it is you only need to do that once or twice to remind yourself. And pretty soon you understand it for every other passage in that book. Because now you're working through the book. You can see how it fits in, what comes before, what comes after. You know, if I stand you on a concrete bridge and I, it's going over some river, not a river in L.A., but one with water in it. And you look upstream and you see the water flowing towards you. And then you look downstream and you see the water flowing away. And I would ask you, now I know you can't see the concrete, but which direction is the water flowing under that bridge? It's like, oh, let me think about it. You know what direction it's flowing. The same direction as the context dictates. See, that's what's great about context. When you look at the context, it forces you a lot of times to the accurate understanding of the passage. Now, if you're feeling... You know, okay, I, 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 I'm understanding, okay, I need to pray, I need to do the context, and I, I don't have a study Bible, and, and Pastor Hughes, I don't want to give up my precious, because I have a Bible, and I really like it, and I don't want to get another one, because this is the one I've always read, and it's not a study Bible, and do I have to get a study Bible? No, you don't have to. Here's another good book. Of course, um, there's no more in the bookstore, because some uh, sneaky individual after first service, went in there and bought it. But um, here's a great book to get. I would encourage you to get this book if you don't always have, have already have it. It's called Talk Through the Bible. Talk Through the Bible by Wilkinson and Boa. You know, I've got it on my computer, but you can get the hard copy or whatever. What's neat about it is these two guys went through every book of the Bible and they just kind of, first, they kind of give you a visual chart. If you're a visual person, a visual chart breaking down the book into different pieces. It's really cool. And then they give you things like historical background, theme, setting, author, date, um, keys to the book, key scriptures, key people, thought things about Christ in the book, and then a detailed outline. So if you were studying 2 Timothy 2.15, you could just go there and learn all about those things, about the context and how exactly how 2 Timothy 2.15 fits into the overall book and to the near context of the book and that major outline point of the book. And you can just find it in just a couple minutes and you're off. You got it. Okay. Now you have context. So I would recommend you do that. You do those two things. Pray and pay attention to the context, which is the king of all Bible study uh, principles. If you do those two things, you will be ahead of probably 90% of all Bible interpreters, including pastors. Including pastors. You know, I'm going to be preaching on Genesis this fall, Lord willing. And so I thought, well, you know, I want to get boned up on Genesis. So I download 25 sermons on Genesis. Only two of them were barely tolerable. I was, I was listening to them. There were some times I just wanted to like, you know, to beat up the inside of my truck. It's like, God, look at that car. What are you saying? It doesn't mean that. Where, where do you see evolution in there? You know, just, it just, okay, so I want you to know, 
If you just pray and notice the context, you're going to be way, way ahead of most people. Let me just give you some examples. These are kind of fun. These are just some little examples. Let's think of a, like a really common verse. John 3.16. John 3.16. Do not turn there. Okay, so here we are. Everybody knows John 3.16. You say, yeah, I know John 3.16. It's, you know, for God to love the world. He gives only big son. So you, you kind of know it. You know, it's, yeah, it's on the bottom of the in and out cup. You know, I mean, I, I know that verse. Everybody knows that verse. Okay, well, let's talk about that verse. Who is speaking to whom about what and when? Uh, see, some of you, I can hear something. Yeah, that's right. Jesus is speaking, speaking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee who came to him by night because he didn't want to be seen by his peers. Nicodemus then comes to Jesus and says, we know that you are from God because no one could do the things that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus says, all the Pharisees realize you've got to be from God because nobody can do the miracles you do unless God is with him. Now I'm here. I want to know some things. And Jesus says, listen, you got to be born again. So what? Yeah, if you aren't born again, you can't get into heaven. And Nicodemus is like, how can I be born again? I mean, that would be a tight fit. I'm a lot bigger than my mom is. And besides, she's dead. You know, how do I enter a second time into my mom's womb and be born again? How does that work? And Jesus is going, no. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't understand these things? Unless you're born of the water and born of the spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus, you can tell, he's like, what? And he says, okay, the Holy Spirit is kind of like the wind and the trees. You know, when you see the trees move, yeah, that's not the wind. That's the effect of this, the wind. You don't see the wind. The wind is invisible. It's clear. But you can see the power of the wind on what it does. So when it comes into somebody's born of the Spirit, you see God's Spirit change their life. Move them. Change them. And obviously Nicodemus was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't understand these things. See if you can get this one, Nicodemus. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Now let me just stop here for those of you who don't know that story. Okay, let's go back to Numbers. Numbers. What happens is the people of Israel do their what they do best, what we all do best, and that is sin. So God sends upon them snakes, vipers to bite them. And they all start dying. They then cry out to Moses, Moses, save us, we've always been by snakes, we're dying. And God says, okay, Moses, this is what you do. Make a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole and stick it up there. Anybody who looks at the serpent, they'll be healed physically. So Moses says, okay, he does it and they're healed. So back to John chapter three. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whoa! Do you mean to tell me that John 3.16 is comparing Jesus to a snake? Yeah! Because just as they looked at the bronze serpent to be healed physically, so when we look to Jesus Christ, whom God gave to die on the cross, we are healed spiritually. That gives you a whole different understanding of John 3.16, plucked out of context, doesn't it? Now you think, 
well, that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's cool. A little context there. It's like, whoa, here's another one. You're, uh, you know, listening to, uh, no, you're, you're working on a good bummer. You know, one of those days where you just kind of feel like you're being bummed. You're a little depressed and things haven't gone your way. And so you're kind of moping around and maybe your husband or your wife or some friend comes. You know, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And it's like, oh, why do you have to quote things to me from the Bible? Well, what is that? Well, that's Psalm 118, verse 24, which if you looked in the context, you would discover it's a messianic psalm, a psalm talking about the Messiah, and a psalm which says right before that, the stone which the builders rejected became the very cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The day we are to rejoice in is the day that the builders the leaders of Israel, rejected the chief cornerstone, Jesus. And Jesus, therefore, gave his life, paid the penalty for our sins so that we could be saved. That is the day 2,000 years ago that we are to rejoice in. The day that Jesus died on the cross. Now, is that radically different than, hey, you're bummed, you need to rejoice? In your day. Now, we're talking about your day. There's other verses that talk about your day, but that's not one of them. One more. I see this on bumper stickers and Christian websites and flyers that are sent to the church. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. You see this in all kinds of political campaigns and Christian activist groups and sentimental Christians who want to see America restored to its original, less debauched state. I mean, you see all these things. If we just humble ourselves and God will bless us, he will give us prosperity. And So, you see, so what passage is that? Well, that's Second Chronicles 7.14. But yeah, but who is speaking about whom and what? When? Uh, first of all, in order to make the slogan work, they remove the first word from the verse, which is and, and they put, they substitute if in there. So they actually subtract from and add to the word of God, which brings a curse. But just setting that aside, the kind of little subtle manipulation of the text God is speaking to Solomon at the dedication of the temple. The people of Israel made a covenant with God on Mount Sinai that they would obey God and God would bless them. And if they disobeyed God, God would curse them. So that is the covenant the nation is under. In the near preceding context, God says, listen, when things come upon you like pestilence and famine and all these things come upon you and your nation is suffering because it has disobeyed me and the curses of the law of Moses and Deuteronomy 20 and following are coming upon you, you want to know how to get out from under the curses of the law of Moses? Let me tell you. It, he says, If my people, no, and my people, because it's a continuation of a sentence, humble themselves and pray, then I'm going to hear from heaven. They turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven, 
forgive their sin and will heal, heal their land, physically heal their land, physically make them physically prosperous in the land of Israel. The problem is, is we are in Israel in the land under the covenant of Moses. So you can't just say, well, if America does this, God's going to really, I mean, our economy is going to skyrocket. Well, once you understand the meaning of the text, what it meant, what God meant the text to mean for the original audience which received it, the interpretation, then, because it's an Old Testament passage and we aren't Israel living in the land under the law of Moses, and we aren't experiencing these curses because we've broken the law of Moses or the covenant. How does that apply? What do we do with that? Because we know that all scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, righteousness. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that passage in Chronicles? First, we ask ourselves, what are the timeless truths? That is, those principles that we can find in the text that relate to all believers of all times. I don't have time to go into this in detail, but if you look at the, the series on how to study the Bible, it tells you how to do this in a lot of detail. But anyways, we look for principles in the text which are true of all believers of all time because they're based on the character and nature of God or you know, the, just the way things are of all time. And let me just give you some examples. Here would be one. Men are sinners. Because that's what it's talking about. If your people sin. The reason they have to turn from their wicked way is they turn towards their wicked way. Now, is it true that men still sin? Yes. Okay, so we got that one down. Yes. Um, secondly, sin has built-in consequences. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we may not experience the exact curses of the Deuteronomic Covenant, but we're going to experience consequences. It will make us feel far from God. We won't be blessed spiritually, on and on. Third, if we want to escape the consequences of sin, is it true that we should still humble ourselves, turn from our wicked way, and pray to God? Yeah, and as long as we're placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, crucified and resurrected for sinners, we can then receive forgiveness from God. So that's still still true also. And fourth, when we are walking with God, living in holiness, with our sins confessed and repented of, can we expect blessing from God? Yes, not necessarily physical blessing. Not necessarily that he's going to bless our land with physical prosperity and make our crops grow. But we can experience blessing, not only in this life, but the life to come. We learned that many times over as we were studying Luke. So those are just four principles we extracted from the text, which are inherent in the text after you find out its meaning, that we can then say, okay, men are still sinners... Sin still has consequences. We still need to humble ourselves, repent, and turn to God in prayer when we sin. God will bless us, maybe not physically, certainly spiritually, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Those things are just, we got it now. But it all starts out with the accurate understanding of the passage. And so we started with the context. We sought to discover what the original author meant for the original audience to understand by what was written. Then we look for principles. And once we get the principles, then we can go off into application. A zillion, you know, like if the, the text is thou shall not murder and the interpretation is don't murder, then don't murder with an axe, a bazooka, poison, a dagger, 
a car, you know, whatever. You can get into an unlimited number. The hard part is getting to the principles. And once you get that, then you can go off on what it means to you at that point. So now we need to talk about, so, so, so we need to pray. We need to consider the context. So what are we going to do here for homework? So we got our homework. Now, just a reminder, you're supposed to keep praying. You need to keep doing these things until you die. Okay. This is a cumulative learning here. Um, you need to engage in secret prayer. Hopefully you're trying to keep your 10 minutes a day up, 10 whole minutes of secret prayer, talking with God and try to make it a habit to pray all during the day to talk to God about your job, about your driving, about whatever's going on, about your meal. Just constantly talk, commune with God all day long. And to consider fasting, not necessarily absolute fasting, but maybe um, deny yourself for a certain period of time some of your favorite little dainty morsels, sweets or something. You know, whatever it is, learn to say no to your flesh for all of those reasons that we gave. It's optional, but it's very beneficial. Try it. And then try to spend an additional 10 minutes a day reading and meditating on the word, which you talked about last week, where you're just reading and just thinking, mulling it over. It doesn't need to be a giant text. It could just be a single verse or even a phrase within a verse. You just, you're thinking about it. You're meditating on it. And then try to spend at least 10 to 15 minutes once a week. I mean, we are up to almost giving God a whole hour now during the week. I know this is extreme, but think about it. Try to just maybe, if, if you're just beginning, just look up the cross-references. The reason those little cross-references are in your Bible, almost all Bibles have them, is those cross-references either are passages which talk about the same thing or use a similar word. So you have to kind of look. Sometimes it's talking about a different thing but uses the same word or sometimes it's talking about a similar thing. And just look up some cross-references and see what you can learn. Observe the context, see what you can learn. And you know what? You will learn a lot just by doing those very simple things. I would encourage you, if you've never taken a class and studied the Bible, to do that too. All right, I'm going to close with this little um, thing. While I was studying this week, I came across a devotion for 2 Timothy 2.15. And John MacArthur's devotional truth for today it was for, for yesterday. I thought, well, this is handy. I'm preaching on that text. And it just so happens in the midst of my study, I came upon something I can share with you. Like every single week. Here's what MacArthur writes. Concerning disciplined living, Richard Sheely Taylor writes, quote, Disciplined character belongs to the person who achieves balance by bringing all his faculties and powers under control. He resolutely faces his duty. He is governed by a sense of responsibility. He has inward resources and personal reserves, which are a wonder of weaker souls. He brings adversity under tribute and compels it to serve him, end quote. The Lord uses only the disciplined mind to think clearly, understand his word, and present its truths effectively to the world. Only the disciplined mind constantly discerns truth from error. And only the disciplined Christian is going, uh, has a good testimony within the church and before the world. Simply stated, self-discipline is obedience to God's word and willingness to submit everything in life to his will for his ultimate glory, end quote. Pray with me.
Father, we are thankful that we were able to look at 2 Timothy 2.15 and mine some of its treasures. I pray for all of us here that we would all be studiers of your word. Yes, we are thankful that you have given some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. But I pray that we would also be our own studiers, that we would pray, that we would observe the context, that we would study, read, meditate, think through, learn how to accurately handle your word and the Old Testament and and, and get a grip on some of those issues which are going to bless our souls as we read and study your word. I pray that Calvary Bible Church would become a church like that so we could be holy in our living, so we could be uh, light to the world, and so that we will not be distracted or, Father, tricked by false teachers and false doctrines. And Father, I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.